0: Turn with me in your uh, your Bibles, or look on your bulletin, or uh, unlock your mobile devices, and uh, read with me the um, the passage that will be covered today during uh, the sermon. So it's Second Samuel second um, Samuel verse six verses five through ten. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with uh, castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irrelevant act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed, Edom, the Gittite. This is the word of the Lord.
1: When I was in uh, college, I was involved in a Bible study where I remember one of the men in it was FIRST. He was first on the list to receive a liver transplant. Memphis at that time was sort of a world leader in liver transplants, and this man was first on the list to get one. And by the time he came to our Bible study, his skin had just turned a a sickening yellow. Um, And as we began to share and pray for this brother, I'll never forget the night that he just kind of broke down and said, you just can't imagine how frustrating it is to need something so badly that you're going to die without it. But he said, I can't just go across the street to Kmart and buy myself a liver. (laughs) In other words, can you feel what it's like to have the frustration of needing it so badly but not being able to have it? Well, I'm wondering if after our discussion from last week, you can relate to that sense in any kind of way. What does it feel like to need something so desperately, knowing that you will die without it, but having no access to it. Well, we're in the midst of a study this uh, particular uh, month of July of looking at King David's ascent to the Jewish throne, like we looked at last week, um, and sort of the decisions he makes in the midst of that ascension. And one of them is is that he's saying to his people, like we learned last week, that of all the things that you need more than anything else in the world as you start any new venture as the people of God, Having the presence of God among you is number one. It has to be first. He knows that that is the one thing they need the most. And so in doing so, he brings this very ornate piece of furniture that sort of sits in the back of their worship tent, the tabernacle, which is the focal point of what it means to be in the presence of God, the great ark of the covenant. Now look, one of the things that I tried to stress to you last week that I'll say again this week, What David wants is holy. It is objectively good for David to long to have the presence of God in his midst. But what happens next is so counterintuitive. Uh, It's so shocking that my guess is it'll be borderline scandalous to anybody that you let hear this story. Like it's really in the Bible. But before we get to what happens, I want you to remember that we're trying to see ourselves as a church in this story, because we, too, are about to enter into a building where we hope to meet the presence of God there, fellowship with God being the essence of Christianity. I mean, who would doubt that what brought them into the fellowship of God's people was a sense of wanting and longing to know God. But look, there's an essential message that I want you to sort of get from today's study. And that is this. Wanting the presence of God is not enough. The way that I approach Him is everything. And that path that He has established is non-negotiable. In other words, if I, if a person cannot relate in some sense to the way that this story goes, then there need to be some hard questions asked about some of the first foundational truths of the gospel. So with that setup, let's dive into it. I'll look at three things. What is it that happened? Secondly, why did it happen? And thirdly, what can we learn from it? First of all, what happened? Well, stated simply, there is a problem with the presence of God. Remember what we talked about last week? There's a parade going on. There's celebration, there's singing, there's dancing. There's a brand new cart that got constructed. The ark for some time had been in the uh, 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 house of a guy named Abinadab who has two sons, Uzzah and Ahio. And the two of them were privileged enough to be the ones that were going to walk alongside the ark in this brand new cart that David made to see it on up the way. So apparently you don't steer an ox cart. You walk beside it and sort of guide it as it goes. Well, as I would think would be very natural and a very common thing to happen, Either the ox lurch or maybe they hit a pothole or something, I don't know, but the ark teeters. And of course, it's it's about to fall. Well, no worries. That's why we've got Uzzah standing right there beside the ark so it wouldn't do that. So he reaches out his hand to steady the ark and in a moment he's struck dead. And then, of course, the hammer falls in verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Everyone knew that it was God who had done that. Can you imagine that scene for a moment? I mean, David and the whole house of Israel had been celebrating at this moment, but can you imagine the shrieks, the screams, the sort of slow sort of backing away? from that particular thing? Now look, if there's ever a time to ask the Bible, what in the world just happened? This is one of them. (laughs) What in the world? How do you understand even a story about this? And I want to answer that question. But I also want to make a bet that you're not going to like the answer. (laughs) Because what we find out as we dig into the details of this is that when God gave the instructions to Moses for how to build the Ark of the Covenant, he gave very specific instructions about how it was to be moved. First of all, there were these rings on the side of the Ark that were supposed to have poles through them. You were only supposed to carry them using the rings and the poles. We also know that there was only a very certain tribe of Israel's nation that was meant to ever carry the Ark, and those were the Levites, right? And before they did so, they had to have these days-long ceremonies of consecration and purification before they ever did so. And, and, and of course, they were only to carry them on their shoulders. There was no provision whatsoever for ever touching that thing. Okay, so here's why Uzzah died. Because they had broken all the rules. The, the, The new cart was never demanded. You were never supposed to touch it. There were no Levites. David and Uzzah had broken all the rules. How's that sit with you? (laughs) Look, you need to understand that when people outside of the Christian faith read this story, they hate these kinds of stories. If there's anything we have got to get rid of in our day, it is this kind of God. This vengeful, sort of punishment-driven God, who quite frankly is one thing, but in stories like this, this is just capriciousness. How in the world would God ever sort of be so upset as to kill someone, pronounce the death penalty for this harmless little instinct that this poor guy did? Hey, look, I'm trying to encourage you not to be too hard on your non-Christian friends when they read this story because what happened here is hard. And as it turns out, it was very necessary to drive a very important point home about what it means when you invite the presence of God into your midst. Which ought to lead us to a question. That's my second point. Why in the world did this happen? Because you should be asking, okay, Les, Well, what possibly could the point be that God is making? But I do think it's time for us to sort of take a moment and and begin to grapple with why God lists these very tedious little rules that He does Throughout the Old Testament, if you really want to get a belly full, just take those first three books of the Old Testament and you'll see that there are these things that seem so foreign to our freedom-loving Western minds. But consider for a moment that it may be that all of these rules, these pieces of furniture, the, the tabernacle, what if they were preaching a message? What if they were saying something? And what I want to submit to you this morning is that they were saying is this. Your sin is serious. And it separates you from me. That's the message. Off of the Old Testament, God is saying, your sins are serious. I, my, my holiness and your sin can never dwell together in the same place at the same time. And there is no amount of religious effort. It doesn't matter the parade that you put together. It doesn't matter how new the cart is that you just made. There's no amount of sort of religious activity in which you can engage that you can ever hope to sort of deal with this problem. Nothing. Christianity teaches that there is a chasm between God and human beings and that there is nothing that we can do to bridge that. And if I can Maybe overly dramatize the point. I think what God is saying here in this passage is, it's not just that you can't cross that chasm. I can't cross this chasm. God is saying, as it were, oh, you know, he's looking at our sin and saying, I can't just look at it and say, well, you know, it seems as if you're trying awfully hard. So you know what? Let's let bygones be bygones and we'll just forget it for now. That is most people's version of Christianity in their heads is that God finally was like, well, okay, I guess if you ask nicely that somehow that regains us that, that access back into Him. But God is saying, look, please understand something that when an offense against my holy character is committed, there is an offense that is out there in the universe. And it has to be satisfied. Why? Because I'm a holy God. And if I don't sort of deliver justice for that act against the universe, then I cease to be just. It's his own character that's at stake if we tread upon him as lightly as it is. In the presence of God, it's that we cannot come in. We were built for it. We die without it, but we can't have it. It's almost as if God is saying, look, please don't treat me as if I'm some kind of cranky deity, you know, like, well, you know, just jump through a few hoops, maybe a couple more religious activity over here, and oh, everything will be fine. That's the way that every other world religion functions. You've got the supreme being who sort of is disappointed in his weak subjects, and so he wants a little obedience, a little good deeds here, a little grace there, and then we'll get let you back in favor. Look, I realize many of us are saying to ourselves, well, come on, Les, I don't talk about God that way. But do we? makes me wonder how often, and I know I'm talking about myself here, that I'll bow my head in prayer, and one of the very first things that I begin to think about is, ooh, how am I doing this week? Have I been okay? Like, have, I, have, I, have I done the right things? In other words, I immediately begin to think, what right do I have to be here? And you know what I go to? My record. I go to my righteousness. And suddenly, there. and I will tell you and confess this to you, there's lots of times where I've suddenly been overwhelmed with such a sense of what I've been prior to that prayer. I'll just walk away from it. I don't want to have that conversation right now. I just can't do it right now. See how easy it is? There's an inertia inside of our hearts that pulls us back in to this particular question of what it is. What it is that makes this relationship between me and God what it is. It's everywhere. Because God is saying to, to, to David right now, you're not going to turn me into one of those pagan gods. If you turn me into one of those pagan gods, you're going to make me something that is cruel and capricious in a very real way. Christianity teaches you cannot be saved by your works because my sin is too serious, it is too serious. To be done so. And so I find it interesting that Uzzah's instinct throughout this whole thing was to think, well, the dirt on the ground would dirty up the Ark of the Covenant, but my hands wouldn't. That's what's going on. David and Uzzah are in danger of promoting a version of God that doesn't grasp sin. In other words, he's doing the version of Christianity that makes religious insiders. I mean, it is a new cart, right? A brand new cart. Nothing's ever been written on it. See, when you do this, when you create this kind of God, you create a God that can be managed. And when that's your God, the fruit of that in the life of people is destructive. Eugene Peterson used to talk about this. He used to say, look, if you reject a God of grace and you set up your own standards for yourself, whatever they may be, Let's say on the one hand that you do pretty well with your standards. You know what you become? You become very cold. You become calculating. You condescend to other people who haven't done as well as you have. Or secondly, if you do pretty well with your rules and your life doesn't go the way that you want it to go, you get really resentful at God because He didn't give you the life that you deserve. Finally, if you set up your own standards and your own rules and you fail at those things, you walk around crushed and dejected and full of guilt. And so you've sown the seeds of all relationships to break down your relationships. But do you see what God is saying here? You will either worship a God of complete grace that requires you to admit your profound and bottomless need of Him Or you will fashion a religion on your own terms and become an agent of destruction yourself and erode the relationships you have around you and the presence of God will have nothing of it. Those are the only two choices. So God chooses this profound moment to announce to David that I'm going to get you away from the self-righteous, twisted, smug, and superstitious religion that I know your heart wants to create. Why? Because I'm not cranky, David. I am holy. And that's different. There is no other way to approach me with your moral efforts, no matter how good intention you think they might be. So that's what happened, and that's why it happened. And my question then is, like, what can we learn, for it, learn from it? And I'll be honest with you, this is a bizarre story. But I think it's important for us to know how, how to think about this because we're about to move into this new building. Like, I still think there's something important for us to think about for, because for over 20 years, we have had, shall we say, the rather humble surroundings of, of this place here in this building to remind us that we're just not fancy when we go before God's presence and I think we've taken a little bit of pride in it I know that I have but in about four weeks we're going to be in a place that is decidedly fancy what will that bring up inside of those people inside of us people who have waited for this so long because what I think we begin to realize is when we go into God's presence God's presence begins to strip us David's putting on this big parade with a false confidence because he expects God to do what he wants him to do. But in this very powerful and violent moment, he comes face to face with a holy God. And he realizes God is not playing. And so what you realize is is to walk into the presence of God is to have your life stripped of whatever it is you brought into his presence to leverage his favor. In other words, the glue that holds your life together begins to come undone in his presence. You do realize this. Everybody's got a glue. You've got something that, that sort of makes you feel together as a person. You know, For an athlete, it's his strength. You know, for the businessman, it's his salesmanship. For the, for the musician, it's their skill. For the proud parent, it could be their successful and well-adjusted child. For the lover, it's the arms of their beloved. Everyone has this glue, but when you march into the presence of God, whatever used to hold you together comes apart. That's how you know. There's an old preacher by the name of George Whitfield who preached during the early parts of our nation's history who had a sermon where he distinguished between a Christian and a Pharisee. He says, here's the difference between a Christian and a Pharisee. He said, "A, a, a Pharisee only repents of his sins. A Christian repents, though, of his righteousness. In other words, what Woodfield is saying is, is you've only really met the presence of God, not when you just begin to confess the things that you do wrong, but you also begin to realize, I've got to confess in the things that I thought I was doing right. He says in that sermon, God could condemn you for the best prayer you ever prayed. God could reject you on the basis of how faulty and mixed your repentance really was and really is. Think about that for a second. I heard one preacher put it this way. You may have seen the seriousness of your sin, but have you seen the sinfulness of your seriousness? Look, the, the people who are repenting of their sins only, they never feel good about their situation afterwards. You ever thought about this? does repentance leave you feeling crushed and depressed afterwards and not fulfilled because if it does you're probably just repenting of your sins but there's a there's a release that comes from realizing it's not just the things that i think i've been doing wrong it's even the things that i thought i was doing right i have no hope but in his grace you walk away from that kind of prayer and repentance is joy repentance is coming undone is coming coming back it's coming home so let me finish with a, with a quick question. Has the holiness of God unnerved you? Is that fair to ask? Has your life been interrupted, upended by the holiness of God? One of my favorite books of all time is a book called A Severe Mercy by Sheldon Van Auken. Van Auken and his wife, Davy, uh, are, um, were pagans early on in their marriage, a very passionate, loving marriage. Uh, when they met uh, C.S. Lewis, and the story is about how this sort of perfect marriage and this love affair deals with coming to Christ, especially with the wife coming to Christ first. Well, their path to coming Christians was kind of full of twists and turns, but for the wife, Davy is her name, it happened very early, and she describes a moment in her journals after she had passed away where she was sitting in a park reading a book and doing some people-watching, And while she was there, there was a man who came up behind her and who, in, in the most foul of ways, cursed at her and said something filthy and dirty to her. Well, terrified, she got up and ran away and scurried back home. But when she got back home, she realized something had happened. Even her husband saw it, that he couldn't even console her. He wanted to go and beat the man up, actually, But what what he realized at that moment was is that his wife had for the first time seen the ugliness of the world. And it didn't make her hate the world. You know what it made her do? It made her see herself as a part of that world. She wrote a poem that night in her journal that said this, All the world fell away last night, leaving you, only you, and fright. Of course, her husband, Van Auken, was incredulous. How could this beautiful, almost perfect woman be a sinner? It was absurd to even think about. And as he said as much to her the next morning, she looked at him and she said, but you know what, I remember from a couple of weeks ago when we were talking to that military guy who had said at a moment that he was not going to return to church. He was waiting for the right day to return to church. And he was going to eventually go back and start, uh, start uh, uh, pursuing his relationship with God. And she said, I remember what I said. I looked at him and I mocked him. And I said, oh, so you're not brave enough to go it alone now, are you? In other words, she's tried to convince her husband, there is darkness inside of me. And here he says this on page 68. Now her words haunted her. Sin. She knew there was such a thing as plain sin. Not something any psychiatrist could absolve or explain away. Even worse, the sins of omission. She quoted from some poet whose name she didn't know, Oh, unattempted loveliness, oh, costly valor never won. She was shaken to the depths, shaken as I had never known her to be. I knew that. I knew it had been a huge and dreadful experience, but how could I understand? I, who had never known the like. Isn't that fascinating? Her first encounter with sin wasn't just in the things that she had done, but it was in the good that she had the opportunity to do and didn't do. It was the sins of omission as much as sins of commission that led her into the presence of God saying, I have nothing. So I can end with this. I think that every Christian, it can't be denied, can report of a day when when all the world fell away. And even when my best efforts, I realized, were tainted and I was left undone, disintegrated, panicked, fearful. And I realize that this is kind of a dark way to end this thing, but please come back next week, please. (laughs) But as dark as the sermon sounds, is it possible that one of the reasons why my faith rests so lightly upon my heart is because I've tried to enter through a gate other than this one. Other than the one that God says, this is the only way. If you want to come into my presence, this is the only way. You've got to meet it for real. And so it's a question for us. Has this happened to us as a body of people? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we would confess that we indeed treaded lightly. I treaded lightly. And coming into this place of worship, Father, in a place of longing for Your presence, we just don't know. We don't fully grasp what we're asking for. We're invoking a presence, Father, that is fearful and smoking and burning in its holiness. And we need that. We need to know that. And only Your Word can draw it out of us. So, Father, in the horror of this story of what happened to poor Uzzah, would You call us back afresh in a fresh new way in repentance and humility longing for you to reveal yourself in us in the way in which only you have ordained would you do that for we ask it in Jesus name amen